Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Investigators, sometimes I do get to uh, sleuthing in my research, and well, this week, my sleuthing sends the investigation into a whole new direction. There is an innate understanding to the writing of Dominic Dunn that is so deeply seated in high society, and there are layers of knowledge and implication that you might not get in one of his articles, but when you take in the whole collection of his work, the social register, the 400, the families that play with power and crime and privilege, all of it comes into play. And I would be remiss if I did not honor and appreciate the tapestry of all of that. And in honoring some of the threads that are coming in our season, figured it was a good time just to back up a wee bit to set the stage, so to speak, about the connections and intricacies that are coming up as we work through just the Upper East Side in our New York state of crime season. Honestly, all of these families are going to play in some way or another throughout our podcast journey, not just in this season, but future seasons as well. It's time to get to know the scene. Welcome to The Social Network. These episodes coming up are a little less true crime and a little more high society, but you know I have to cover it all. We have so much more true crime to cover, but it is the combination of all these spider webs that make the stories so much more impactful. It's the high society is the platform. It's the structure on which the whole sordid web lies upon. So today, our investigation will lead us a bit into early New York City, the Knickerbocker Society, and its reigning queen, Caroline Shermerhorn Astor. Her friends call her Lena, but honestly, she would like you to know that she is the only Mrs. Astor. Thank you very much, even though that's not at all true. Getting to where we're going in this season becomes way more fun when we start from the very beginning, and that is our aim today. What is Knickerbocker Society? Why does Mrs. Astor have such a big influence, and what is the 400 anyway? Also, how does a sassy upstart from the South throw a wrench into the whole darn thing? Let's investigate. Okay, let's start with the basics. Knickerbocker. What is the term? Where does it come from? The term Knickerbockers does trace its origin back to the Dutch settlers who come to the New World, especially to what is now known as New York. Back then, in the 1600s, it was New Amsterdam. But Knickerbockers sort of refers to the style of pants that the settlers wore. The pants roll up just below the knee, which become known as Knickerbockers or Knickers. In the year 1809, Irving Washington will pen his work of satire called A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the Dutch Dynasty. Washington will use the pseudonym of Diedrich Knickerbocker. The book is written from the point of a 25-year-old scholar, and I say that loosely because it is a satire, but a History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the Dutch Dynasty sort of tells a comedic story of Dutch settlers in this new American colony, and the pseudonym name of Diedrich Knickerbocker stuck. 
So Irving Washington will later write, When I find after a lapse of nearly 40 years the haphazard production of my youth still cherished among New Yorkers, when I find its very name become a household word and used to give the home stamp to everything recommended for popular acceptance, such as Knickerbocker Societies, Knickerbocker Insurance Company, Knickerbocker Steamboat, etc., and when I find the New Yorkers of the Dutch descent priding themselves upon being a genuine Knickerbocker, please myself with the persuasion that I have struck the right chord. Boy, howdy diddy. So here's the thing, though. The Knickerbocker term doesn't really catch on to society so much until after the Civil War. Sure, boats and insurance companies, but the Knickerbocker Club isn't a club yet. It is going to take the division of the Civil War for that to happen. But also, as I'm about to tell the next story, pay attention because I think something about the origin of the 400 lies within this as well. Let's set the stage and just look at the Upper East Side in New York City just for a moment up until the Civil War. The Upper East Side right now is considered east of Central Park all the way to the East River from 59th to 96th Street. There are three distinct areas in this. Carnegie Hill, Yorkville, Lenox Hill. We're going to talk about all of those. But before the Civil War, this area is mainly farmland. Uh, It's five miles by boat from the city. There are no roads. This is vacation homes. New York City at the time is down by Wall Street. It's the financial district. It's the lower boroughs. And all of those are developing. And as they develop, as the decades go on, the elite of the city will be moving on up ever northward and will end up fully cemented into the Upper East Side by the turn of the 20th century. But let's go back to the very early 19th century. We in the Upper East Side, if we have a lot of money, we're building summer homes. In 1799, Archibald Gracie will build one of these. Again, no roads. Five-mile boat ride from the city, but Archibald Gracie is going to build a nice little colonial, which will become Gracie Mansion. Currently, the home of the governor of New York. This happens about in the 1930s through a series of deeds and trusts. But at the time in the Gracie Mansion, this is where Alexander Hamilton starts the New York Post and gets all of his funders. Also, Napoleon Bonaparte's brother, Joseph Bonaparte, partied here as well. The wealthy are getting out of the city to escape the heat. A lot of land, very few houses. But this is going to change as the 19th century continues a lot. Why? We're going to get many, many millionaires. We're also going to get an influx of immigrants into the city. We're going to get building projects. And all of this is leading us to the Upper East Side, Millionaire's Row, and all the cultures that blend around that and add into a thousand juicy stories of all the families that our man Nick loved to talk about. But centering back to this narrative, the Knickerbockers. Let's scoot back to 1836, where a number of leading New Yorkers, all men, naturally, 250 of them, calling themselves gentlemen of social distinction, come together to form the Union Club. 250 come in first. This number is later expanded 
to 400. Make a note. It's kind of interesting, right? Now, the union club operates with this boys club thing like forever. It's conservative. It's super conservative. So conservative. But by the time the Civil War happens in the 1860s, many club members will not expel supporters of the Confederacy. Why would they? There are strong commercial ties with the southern states. The union club is filled with your movers and shakers, your dudes with cash, and the north and the south between commercial ties. Half of what's coming out of New York City is cotton from goods grown in the south. Like, all these dudes are in business together, the war be damned. So, by the union club not taking a stand on members who are supporting the Confederacy, this gets some other union club members pretty angry who do support abolition and condemn slavery. And there must be a better way to make trade happen. So this faction decides to take their uh, black ball, so to speak, and go form another club. They are going to do this under the name of the Knickerbocker Club, founded in 1871 by 18 former union club members. The Knickerbocker Club has a restaurant, always has, fancy food and stuff. The Knickerbocker Club also has a policy of no women, still today. There is no women uh, admitted in the club. There is no website for the club. The Knickerbocker Club requires utter and complete secrecy. The Knickerbocker Club is so exclusive that it only has one rule concerning giving out information on the club, and that is never, ever to give out any information on the club ever. You don't talk about Knickerbocker Club. Notable members of this club do include Douglas Fairbanks, John Jacob Astor, J.P. Morgan, Franklin D. Roosevelt. The club is ever so exclusive that its name becomes the moniker, the Knickerbockers. The Knickerbockers become a byword for the New York elite families of the day until the Gilded Age happens. But again, today, let's just get through the Knickerbockers. There is no one more important as a social figure in Knickerbocker society as Caroline Shermerhorn Astor. She is the deal, the biggest deal. Nothing in society happens without Caroline's approval and consent, at least not from the 1850s to the 1890s. Caroline is going to have her Knickerbocker pedestal rocked by a cheeky upstart named Alva Vanderbilt in 1883, but Caroline begins cementing the 400 and its origins back in 1872, orchestrated with the aid and assistance of Ward McAllister, this guy. He's Lena's friend. He's also her cousin by marriage and fellow Francophile. Let's begin with our uh, not-so-sweet Caroline. Caroline, Lena, Shimmerhorn, was born into an old Dutch Knickerbocker family in 1830. She married William Backhouse Astor Jr. in 1853. Now, the Astor's wealth exceeds her family's wealth by 12 miles, but Caroline's family has a much better pedigree. Remember, the Astors are just trashy, illegal fur trader upstarts at this point. Caroline, now the wife of William Backhouse Astor, makes William drop the Backhouse from his name because... It is commonly used as another word for outhouse, and Caroline just can't stand that. 
She is recognized as the queen of Knickerbocker society. And as ironic as the Astors, a generation before, right, selling illegally trapped furs, but hey, society changes fast and how. At this time, society, the upper crust, is a closed circle. Great wealth alone does not get you an invitation to anything. It is a class system that is strictly based on exclusion. The Knickerbockers have a lot of money. They live very quietly. They socialize only with each other. You got to remember, New York colonized by the Dutch, then the English. This is a sedate society. The rules are the rules are the rules. Everybody knows the rules. We don't break the rules. We play in our own lanes. Caroline herself is a big-boned and kind of fairly plain woman, but what she lacks in beauty, she will make up for in determination and a commanding presence. To add a little bit to this image and her impressive manner are a lot of opulent and striking Charles Worth gowns she loves to wear, in addition to a lot of jewelry. The Astors have the cash to do it. Now, the thing about poor Caroline and William not backhouse Astor, they're not well-matched. Willie likes to have fun and yachts and drinks, and he has a lot of affairs, but the one thing that Willie has no interest in is playing society games with his wife. William doesn't care. This leaves Caroline alone to maintain her role as the leader of society. It's an obsession, really, and William leaves home more and more as not to interfere with all of her social scheming plans. William Astor has been described as a chronically absent husband, father, and participant in Astor Estate Matters. He made pleasure his religion. Caroline and William do have five kids, so they're successful at something. The last child they have, John Jacob Jack Astor, was born in 1864. At this time, hubby William is mostly out, but I do want you to know that there is a fourth child. Her name is Carrie. She is born in 1861. She's going to play a big role coming up here soon. Just make a note. The Astors have a lot of family in the city. There are a lot of Astors, but Caroline Astor insists on being known as the Mrs. Astor. Although clearly she is not the only Mrs. Astor, but Caroline Shimmerhorn Astor is the undisputed queen of society. She is determined to keep society an impenetrable circle. She will spend her life devoted to excluding anyone she did not see as worthy. And she, as well as Ward McAllister, are the rule makers, the social arbiters of what this scale is. So when new money starts coming in to invade her precious little world, Caroline Astor is unwavering in her exclusion. She calls these new money people bouncers. Uh, they're nouveau riche. She finds them distasteful. She thinks they're ostentatious, way too energetic, way too ambitious. These families who Caroline is excluding include the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, and the Goulds. None of those families are welcome, despite their enormous wealth that is already in place and will continue 
to grow through the decades. If Mrs. Astor doesn't accept you, you're not getting an invitation to any society event. Now, with the aftermath of the Civil War, it is possible that a rich son could marry a younger, less desirable Knickerbocker daughter because there was a shortage of men from the Civil War, but that's about the only like hall pass you may get. So this is where we're at. By the end of the Civil War, as we talked about, Knickerbocker Club formed in 1871. Let us get to 1872 and talk about Ward McAllister a little bit. Ward McAllister is considered to be the father of the 400. He is the self-appointed arbiter of high society and the customs that it should follow. He is a tremendous snob. Ward was born in my state here, Savannah, Georgia, in 1827, and he's going to make a fortune practicing mining law in California during the 1849 gold rush. He'll make his way to New York after the Civil War. He will marry his own heiress, Sarah Tainter Gibbons, in 1853. They have homes in New York as well as Newport, Rhode Island. Now, Ward realizes there's no point in fighting against the nouveau riche families entering society. They're here to stay. They're only getting wealthier. So Ward decides to set up a system that will instead regulate their entry and acceptance. So it's guided. They will not, they no path to take over Knickerbocker society. Ward firmly believes that there needs to be a leader. Caroline Astor is designated that leader. She is the queen of high society. Ward, in his snobbish wisdom here, decides that society, quote unquote, will be invitation only and that invitations will be extended to a combination of new and old money families. He will, f- he will found the Society of Patriarchs in 1872. Now, to select those worthy of invitations to be part of Ward's Society of Patriarchs, Ward forms a small committee. They'll meet every day for two months, and this committee, by the end, will choose 25 distinguished wealthy men from old and new families who were invited to be patriarchs. The cost of this privilege, it's $125 a year with the agreement to throw two or three exquisite balls a season. Each of these 25 distinguished wealthy men could invite four ladies and five gentlemen to the balls, including his family and himself. There is a provision for distinguished strangers only approved by Ward McAllister to be invited as well. Okay, all the dudes who are asked to be a patriarchal society member immediately accept, and then a lot of people apply to be a patriarch. Like, I want to do that too, but Ward is going to turn most of them down. As McAllister predicts, all of these exclusive balls and galas work because they are so exclusive. The secret power is now how selective they were and how difficult it was to get an invitation. So by establishing this exclusive invitation-only society, this is the 400, we're just not quite calling it that yet, Ward McAllister has secured absolute social power 
and he is going to ensnare Caroline Astor in his swarthy plans. Okay, so this whole Society of Patriarchs thing goes fine enough. It's, again, the baseline for the 400 for a while, but it's secret. No one's calling it the 400. The 400 as a term isn't going to be solidified until about 1892. But for 20 years, 400 is the number of people that Caroline Astor's ballroom can hold. So clearly... That must be the correct number of people in polite and accepted society. Mrs. Astor's home and the ballroom that will only fit 400 people, only 400, is a large brownstone home. This was located at the time at 350 5th Avenue and East 34th Street. That brownstone no longer exists and what is in the place of Mrs. Astor's original ballroom of 400 is currently the Empire State Building. Caroline's going to have a new home in the coming decades, but this is the 5th Avenue and East 30s address that she's going to have in the 50s and the 60s before she uh, moves uptown into the Upper East Side as the elites are moving northward. Anyway, for 20 years, the secret 400 is a thing. It is a way to keep the unwanteds out and stay exclusive. Everybody knows who's in. Everybody knows who's out. But no one counted on a little Southern Belle upstart who married into the Vanderbilt family. This sassy girl is determined to land the Vanderbilts on top of the social ladder. Her name is Alva Smith. Alva Smith Vanderbilt By the time she's married and Knickerbocker Society is not ready for her. Now is a terrific time to take a break to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we are going to hear about sassy Alva taking on the system. Oh, Alva. (sighs) Alva Smith is born in 1853 on Government Street in Mobile, Alabama. Alva's family is loaded. They summer in Newport, Rhode Island, which will give Alva access to many of the New York high society people that had been looking to build in the Newport area by the middle of the 19th century. A lot of these folks, whoa, now we have a mansion in the city that used to be our summer place, and I suppose we need a new summer place now that's even more exclusive, so Newport, Rhode Island it is. There's a whole season on Newport, Rhode Island coming, y'all. It's just not the story right now. But this is just a mention of how the Southern Belle Alva has access because of Newport, Rhode Island society and knowing all these families. She's got the access to land, the grandson of Cornelius Vanderbilt as her husband. This chap's name is William K. Vanderbilt, and they marry in April of 1875 at Calvary Church in New York City. In a stroke of tremendous luck for Alva, her husband's grandfather, Cornelius Commodore, dies in 1877, leaving the Vanderbilts free to social climb with an abundance of cash. As much as the Vanderbilts had been trying to break in to this society, they were never, ever, ever going to be accepted into anything until Commodore, until the Commodore, Cornelius Vanderbilt, had passed away. He was vulgar. He was cruel. Nobody was going anywhere into high society with Commodore 
at their heels, but alas. Alva and William have three kids. The first, a daughter, Consuelo. Consuelo is named for Alva's very best friend in the whole world, Consuelo is Naga. Consuelo is Naga, BFF, is the one who introduces Alva to William K. Consuelo's daughter is going to become important in this story, and that's why I mention her now. For Alva and William, two other sons will follow in 1878 and 1884. Okay, so let's take a moment here just to take in the scene. The tight-knit Knickerbocker Society has had to devise some pretty clever ways to keep all those upstarts out. Like, America is booming. And the newly rich are really, really rich, but they don't have the pedigree, the history, or the traditions. Knickerbocker Society is not into it. We are the knobs. We are the old money. Stay away. They're the knobs. Knickerbockers. But here come the swells, our new money folks spearheaded by our sassy Southern belle, Alva, who will use her married name and cash to launch a campaign to tear down the whole system of the snobbish New York elite society who is ever so resistant to new money coming in. New money's like, hey, we got cash. Our homes are built just as fine as yours are. Why can't we be in your ballrooms too? See, with Alva, it's not so much about tearing down Knickerbocker society as much as it is trying to find a way to break into it. She wants to assimilate her family into the movers and the shakers. Part of that, building projects. New money is building homes. By the 1860s, 1870s, Fifth Avenue in the 50 and 60 streets are going to become the new territory for building. This is going to be the baseline for what is going to become the very eastern part of the Upper East Side and its three divisions through the next century. But Alva, y'all. Okay, so Alva knows how to break through, and she's a girl with a plan. And this plan begins with the talents of Richard Morris Hunt, famous architect, called in to assist our fearless heroine. Alva's idea here... Should be simple enough to build a French Renaissance-style mansion on the northwest corner of 5th Avenue and 52nd Street. If I have the best home on the block, I can land with a big impact. Okay. Also a benefit to note that Alva's new home on 5th and 52nd Street is right across the street from what is known as the Triple Palace. The Triple Palace consists of three homes. These are the three homes of William Henry Vanderbilt. What I need you to know about the Triple Palace is it is completed in 1882, the year before Alva's home vision is complete. The Triple Palace takes up two entire blocks. It's located at 645th Avenue between 51st and 52nd Street. William Henry Vanderbilt builds two of these homes for his daughters. And like William has a lot of kids. So it's not (laughs) only the Vanderbilts that are trying to compete to get into high society. The Vanderbilts are all competing with each other too. I need you to remember that. The Commodore, who passed away in 1877, but before his passing in his life, he had a lot of kids like 11. So this one, William Henry, gets 
the bulk of Commodore's cash when he passes away. 95% of the Commodore's estate goes to William Henry. This is about $100 million. William Henry, pretty good with cash. William Henry's going to double this $100 million by the time of William's death in 1885 to $200 million. William Henry has a lot of kids. Alva's husband is one of these kids. So her husband, William K. Vanderbilt, will inherit $55 million in 1885 when William Henry dies. This is the rich line of the Vanderbilts. Okay, because what happens? Commodore has 10 other kids, right? The one other son he has and the nine daughters who remain are left fighting over the remaining 5% of his estate. We're going to talk about the Vanderbilt family so, so much and how it all shakes down back to the narrative today. Alva's home. It is called the Petit Chateau. It's located at 660 Fifth Avenue. It is impressive. It is a castle and it is built to signify the William K. Vanderbilt's family's arrival into New York elite society. But the queen of the Knickerbockers, old Caroline, will continue to ice out these nouveau riche upstart Vanderbilts. And Alva, well, she's got a problem to solve. It just so happens Consuelo Isnaga, her BFF, has a problem to solve as well. See, Consuelo is miserable in her unhappy marriage. She is married to the future 8th Duke of Manchester, but it was an arranged marriage and it's not going great. And wow, they are pitifully broke and she hates her husband and she needs some cash. So Alva and Consuelo BFF, these two clever and innovative women, are going to team up and find a way to improve both of their situations. They're like, hey, we have a great idea. We know how to solve this. Let's throw the party of the century. Welcome to the Vanderbilt Costume Ball of 1883. So what's the plan? Twofold here. Alva's going to break into society with the lavishness and extravagance of her home and ball attended. Naturally, everybody's going to want to come because her BFF, the future Duchess of Manchester, is here to give it legitimacy. The ball would be in Consuelo's honor just to make it clear to all of society that the Vanderbilts are flirting with English royalty, so to speak, and that, of course, this is the hottest party of the year and everybody's got to come. That's Alva's motivation. For Consuelo BFF, this ball would provide a, you know, rare time of joy and planning, and it'll be fun to do something with my best friend, and what an elaborate event, and God, we're great at planning parties, But the thing that Consuelo is really looking for, she's looking to establish her brokerage firm. See, she wants to make some cash by introducing rich American girls to not rich at all, but titled English aristocrats. So we're about to land into the dealing of American moneyed girls getting betrothed and sent across the pond to landed broke gentry. And it is Consuelo Isnaga 
who is leading this charge. Now, for her efforts, Consuelo, for all of her scheming and matchmaking, will receive generous tips and thank you gifts. So this will be a way for her to solve her financial problems for herself and her children, since her husband really is a louse and can't be counted on for anything. Titles don't necessarily mean what you think they do. Okay, so these two have a perfect plan. What could go wrong? Certainly, with the ball of the century, Caroline Shermerhorn Astor will have to include us, and Alva is playing a game for everything it is worth. As the home is being built and decorated and furnished, Alva is getting her home written up in the press. They are invited to come visit. She's telling them about the tapestries and the wallpapers and the stairs and the furniture. All the details of the party planning, the press cannot get enough. It is the scene. The upcoming Vanderbilt Ball is national news for months before their actual party. Not just news in New York, but it's getting picked up and reprinted in nationwide papers. Everybody's excited. Everybody wants their invitation. Everybody's thinking about what it's costume ball. What are they going to go as? Every eligible single lady in New York is practicing what are called quadrilles. These are dances performed with four couples in a rectangular fashion. There are going to be a number of quadrilles at the big ball. and Every eligible debutante wants their chance to shine. It's time to bring Carrie Astor back around. Carrie Astor, Caroline's daughter, and all of her friends have been practicing their quadrilles for months. They're waiting for their hand-delivered invitations, and all the hand-delivered invitations do go out and are delivered to guests. And Carrie Astor, daughter of Caroline, who's been practicing every day all of her little dances, has no invitation. See, Alva and Consuelo have invited Carrie to be one of the ladies to dance. Carrie already knows she's in. They've already told her, Carrie, you're in. You're the star of this quadrille. But then Carrie has no invitation. And Carrie's crying to her mother. Why don't I have an invitation, Mom? And Carrie doesn't have an invitation because Caroline Shermerhorn Astor had never formally introduced herself to Alva Vanderbilt. Holy cats, Alva is so crafty. So, Carrie cries, Carrie begs, Carrie pleads. Caroline has to suck it up. She goes to Alva's house, drops her calling card on the silver plate, and sure enough, the next day, here comes an invitation for Carrie, who is delighted so she can dance her quadrille. Also, Mrs. Astor will be at that ball. Also, so will Ward McAllister. Holy cats, the night has come. March 26th, 1883. Crowds are lining the streets. Beginning late afternoon, early evening, police are holding back all the looky-loos who have come to glimpse the glamour and the decadence of these Knickerbocker high society folks living like no one else in the city. This is a talk of the town, this party. Police continue to hold back the crowds all evening long. The party doesn't even begin until 11 o'clock at night. Towards the commencement of the party, 1,200 extravagantly costumed guests 
will begin arriving all in decked out carriages, all dressed in meticulously chosen finery, like everybody's been in preparation for months, right? Alva will come as a Venetian noble. She will descend her grand staircase, taking in the whole scene of her triumph. There's Mrs. Astor. They talk animatedly at the ball. And even the great matriarch, queen of the Knickerbockers, Caroline Astor, has to concede. Giving a statement a little bit later, saying we have no right to exclude those whom this great country has brought forward. The time has come for the Vanderbilts. Y'all, this isn't even the talk of the party. The real showstopper of the party is Alice Claypool Vanderbilt. She's Alva's sister-in-law, the wife of Cornelius Vanderbilt II. Alice? Alice shows up in a Charles Frederick Worth creation, titled, yes, it has a title, this dress has a title, called the Electric Light Dress. Now, Charles Frederick Worth is an enormous deal, probably his own episode. But let me just preface the story here with saying he is the father of haute couture. He is working out of Paris. He is legendary. He is super involved in the French court of Empress Eugenie. He is the favorite of American girls in Paris, women all over the world, actually. Charles Frederick Worth is a legend. He is going to create this electric light dress for Alice. It's a gown made of silver and gold thread, yellow satin. It's decorated with glass pearls and beads that are shaped in lightning bolt patterns. And in a brand new innovation, she has an accessory. There is a battery built in to the light bulb torch that she is holding as an accessory of the dress, which legitimately lights up. This is so similar to the Statue of Liberty's torch, which fundraising has only started for the year before in 1882. The Statue of Liberty is not going to start construction in the United States until 1885, with the pedestal being built by Richard Morris Hunt, incidentally. But like, sorry, this dress is light years ahead of its time. Anyway, if you want to see the dress, you can view it at the Museum of the City of New York in all of its glory. While you are there, you should definitely check out the official photos of the night held also within the Museum of the City of New York. I feel that the most unusual gown, costume, of all of these photos is worn by a Miss Kate Fearing Strong. Now, Miss Kate, her nickname is Puss, and she is really going to get into her character of Cat. No princess, no fairy tale, no court lady of distinguishment from any past century. It is a cat for Kate and her dress. Well, (laughs) I'll let the New York Times tell you about it. The overskirt was made entirely of white cat's tails sewed on a dark background. The bodice is formed of rows of white cat's heads, and the headdress was a stiffened white cat's skin, the head over the forehead of the wearer with the tail pendant behind, a blue ribbon with puss inscribed upon it, which hung a bell worn around the neck completed the dress. She wore 17 cats as her outfit and has a white cat 
like has a white cat hat. It's the most extraordinary picture you've ever seen. The reported cost of the Vanderbilt Costume Ball of 1883 is about $250,000 in those days' dollars. The party would be looking somewhere around $6 million or so in today's dollars. The supper, which is served at 2 a.m., is prepared by the chefs from Delmonico's. Delmonico's at this time is located at 5th Avenue and 26th Street. Delmonico's is a big deal. Dinner, again, 2 a.m., a small army of servants. The menu includes fried oysters, chicken croquettes, Maryland-style terrapin. Those are the hot dishes. Cold dishes, salmon a la Rothschild, beef ham and chicken and jelly, chicken salad, celery, sandwiches a la Windsor, and several kinds of ices. The flowers for the event, going to run a total of about $11,000. The champagne for the event will come to about $65,000. Spending this kind of cash, nothing for this line of Vanderbilts. They're the Vanderbilts with the good money. And there is a little pushback here. The New York Sun will publish an article that will take issue with this excess uh, in the city because there's also a lot of suffering in the city. Again, these people are living like no one else in the city is living. The New York Sun will write, Some kind-minded persons argue that entertainments of this kind are both charitable and patriotic, for they cause money to circulate and give work to those whose lot it is to toil. This is sentimental rubbish. The needy American working man and working woman do not make a cent by the importation of Worth's dresses, the purchase of new diamonds at Tiffany's, or the resettling of old family jewels. The festivity represents nothing but the accumulation of immense masses of money by the few out of the labor of many. Alva doesn't care, because by March 27th, 1883, when the sun comes up, the Vanderbilts are on that list of 400. And also, the list of 400 is no longer limited to 400 people. Alva has landed her way into society, and it is goodbye knickerbockers, hello gilded age, and everything is about to change. The 400, high society, the homes, how they build, social constructs, everything has changed. And we're going to be here for it on Done and Done, every last juicy bit. We're going to be back next Monday with a brand new episode where we're going to get into the aftershocks of this 1883 earthquake of a costume gala ball. We're going to be talking about more balls and more building projects, as well as the fallout of the players from this story, as well as the introduction of so many more players coming into our web of Dominic Dunn's world. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in this week. I hope that you have enjoyed the high society turn of the investigation. I appreciate you so very much. Until we meet again, my friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. 
You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.